Hello, everybody. This is the second edition, the second edition of Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. We're so glad you came back. We kind of set the stage last week, and uh, this week we're going to get a little bit deeper into the story and a little bit deeper into some of the concerns that uh, we all need to respond to. We're with Tom Serino again this week, myself, Joe Serino, and Dr. Chuck Stead. Take it away, Chuck. Thank you, Joe. This is uh, Trapper Story Part 2. By my third season, I was a regular fox trapper. This came to me from both long observation and a great deal of advice. I had noticed that after a fresh snowfall, there were fox tracks that followed my own, often stepping into my tracks very neatly, almost invisibly. Fox would visit my sets. Fox would examine them, mark them with urine, occasionally steal the bait, and then sometimes set off the traps by back-digging debris into them. No matter how I disguised my traps, Fox knew they were there. Walt took me to some old native trappers who lived in places like bungalows not meant for four seasons or old Airstream trailers set up on cinder blocks. He once took me to a fellow who had his entire aluminum Airstream covered in hand paintings, as one might expect to see a teepee decorated. Walt said they were not decorations. He said they were picture stories. From these old men, I first heard of animal speak. That is, the way in which we learn what an animal has to tell us. I wasn't very good at doing this, but they said it takes time, and that was good too. They believed too much animal speak too soon for a white boy could be intoxicating. It was explained they meant brain drunk. I was told to catch a fox, I must be a fox. That is to say, as much as one can be a fox. They told me that the fox knows what I'm after and that I would get it by striking a bargain with Fox. This meant that I was to be brother to Fox. If I was allowed to take life, I was expected to return it one day. Now, no one actually told me how I was going to return it. This did not mean I would offer up my mortal existence, only that I would walk a path with an ear to Fox, and I would know when Fox called me. Walt enjoyed these little lessons. He never really gave up what he thought about them, though. Uncle Mal, on the other hand, the great skeptic of Indian lore, advised that I follow the lessons of A.R. Harding and not of E.T. Seton. As Seton often drew upon the red path, something Mal dismissed as just folklore. I took it all in. As Fox tracked me, I tracked Fox. If Fox marked one side of a tree with urine, I marked the other side. If Fox lay scat on the tip of a log, I did the same. No easy trick during a freezing cold winter. There was one fox that regularly took a route along the Tornbrook, up past the Hemlock Falls, beyond the Candlebrook Outlet, and along the West Bank, marking some sycamore. Usually the same ones. My trapping buddy, Ricky, and I, we studied this route. Eventually, we made three sets, each with a different pattern of disguise. All three had two traps each, boiled in beeswax, and arranged differently at various distances along the shoreline. Then, one Saturday... We found most of the torn brook frozen over, with the only openings where water would rush through at the hardest, somewhere in the center of the brook. It was at the set, closest to the ice, that Fox was waiting, tethered to one of our traps. Now, I had been advised by the elders that while Coon will put up a fierce battle until the end, Fox, on the other hand, knows that he's been had and he awaits his fate. 
At the time, my only weapon was a little war club that I'd carved out of a chunk of maple. So with Ricky distracting the fox, I snuck up close behind to wallop him. And then I hesitated. He turned, and he attacked. I fumbled, I stepped back on the ice, I crashed through into about two feet of cold flowing water, and Fox wrapped his front paws around my leg and proceeded to gnaw into my skin. Having dropped my club, I grabbed Fox by the throat. I plunged him into the water to finish him off, and before the life went out of him, his face turned into mine. It was as if I held myself underwater. I jumped back. He was finished. It was complete. Being soaked through, we made a small fire and I dried off. As we talked over the adventure, I said nothing about what I had seen in the animal's face. Now, having no male genitalia, we believed it was a female. Later, when skinning the pelt, I discovered it had male testicles shrunken inside its hide, or her hide, depending on how you look at it. When an old Ramapo woman heard that I had killed a fox that had bit me, and the fox was a curious mix of gender. She declared I had killed a manito. This is a spirit beast that can take an animal form and chooses to come to people for various reasons. Walt's old friends, they used to chide me that I had obligation to Brother Fox. And whenever I killed one after that, I used to wonder where my animal debt was leading me. The first time I actually sketched what could be seen as a record of dumping activities was in the late fall of 1965 when I found a backhoe in the evening at the middle pit. It was next to a freshly dug trench about two and a half feet wide and a good four feet deep. The ground all around was rock hard from freezing, but the trench still had water across its bottom. There were two or three steel drums empty, but I could smell that syrupy sweet odor of acetone alongside them. I drew the scene, including the backhoe, a couple of the drums, and the trench. This was on a weekday evening, with a cold night closing in. The next morning I came around to the north side of Middle Pit, and the first thing I noticed was the backhoe tractor had been moved. Overnight it had been moved. I saw that the trench was filled in with dirt spread all around, making it difficult to know exactly where the trench had been. Later that day, I stopped by the paint shop to tell Uncle Mal that the quarry crew was working at night. He shook his head. He told me they weren't quarrying at night. They were burying Ford paint up there. He said it just like that. It was that common. A good many local folks knew that paint was being dumped and buried by Ford. Clearly, Uncle Mal, my beloved storytelling elder, had a very strong opinion about earth-friendly regulations. After all, only a couple of years earlier, he regaled most anyone who would listen to his critique of Rachel Carson, someone he loathed as a knee-jerk liberal sensationalist. Hearing him rail against dumping regulations or taking the side of industry, well, it was not unusual. I didn't know if paint dumping was inappropriate, although there did seem to be something devious about it being done late at night after hours. That Christmas... Walt gave me a twenty-two rifle and told me to take it with me whenever I went trapping. Although we did not discuss it, I had a feeling that the gun was not just for taking game, but maybe for a little security. Apparently, my brother-in-law, Tony, had something to do with this concern. Tony worked for the land company and was familiar with the after-hours activity in the Torn Valley. With a gun in your hands, tramping through the woods, well, it takes on a new meaning. 
I spent longer hours out there, often getting in late at night and being late for school in the morning. I imagined myself cutting quite the figure with my trapper's split-ash pack, my high boots, the hat, the gun. I wore an old hunter's Woolwick Mackinac, really too big for me, but I assumed that made me look stockier. It was warm inside the Mackinac. In fact, it was too warm. Tramping along, weighted down by that coat, I worked up a good sweat on cold nights. I would get a chill, and I would stop, make a little fire and sit by it, imagining that I was deep in the Yukon, far from anything modern. And if I saw car lights coursing up the Torn Valley Road, I'd smother the fire and move from that site just in case I had been spotted. I don't know what I was afraid of, but the nocturnal paint dumping kept me very much alert to human activity. Once, when I was carrying two foxes in the pack, as I came around through the middle pit, there stood a man next to a jeep. He looked as surprised to see me as I was to see him. He hesitated, and then he told me to come over to him. I shook my head, and he moved toward me. His was a quick and rather clumsy move. Without thinking, I put my gun on him. He backed up and said nothing. I moved away slowly and kept my eyes on him until the dark swallowed him up. After that, I took a different route down and was careful to only build a small fire in low places against the rocks. Toward the end of my trapping in Torn Valley in the late 1960s, there were new activities going on there. There were surveyors in the upper pit staking out a site for an electric power substation, and some dumping was going on along the Torn Valley, along the brook part of the valley, in its eastern bank, down below the Hemlock Falls. This dumping seemed to involve a lot of junk, and the nail polish remover scent was there as well. By the summer of 1970, the middle pit was being excavated for a county lease agreement to be used as a residential landfill for the county waste incinerator was being shut down. My brother-in-law, Tony, operated a backhoe doing work for the site. He used to laugh about how it was unnecessary to clean up a site for it to then be used as a dumping ground. It seemed so ridiculous to him. He talked about cutting into the sand and then coming up with these hardened chunks of gray, blue, and red paint. I asked him what he did with it. He said he just moved it off the site that they were looking at. It wasn't moved very far. Thirty-five years later, I would find the paint that Tony had moved. But I could not go back and tell him. By then, he had long passed away from lesions on the brain. Wow. Wow. You don't usually get a direct connection like that. Man, oh, man. When you talked about your cousin, right then I said, well, I'm sure he's no longer with us. My brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah. I, I said, I'm sure he's no longer with us. Just when you said he was on a backhoe digging that dirt, it's, it's obvious to me. I wish it was more obvious to others how toxic material is. I believe people know. I think that some people, as you say, the inconvenient truth... He had a work crew. He had three guys on the ground, and he operated the machine. And when I learned that, I went to see him. Uh, But this was before I found his paint. This was when he was ill. And I went to see him, and I said, well, what were you doing up there? And he had a work crew, and he told me their names. After he passed, I went to look them up. They had all actually passed on years before him. Remember, they were on the ground. So they were 
inhaling more. He was married to a second wife by then. He wasn't my direct brother-in-law anymore. And I talked to his ex, and she said what that summer, uh, summer of 1970, when he was working on that site, he would come home and have nosebleeds. That's the antimony uh, that's mixed with the lead. It causes sure. nosebleeds. He would, uh, his phlegm, he would cough up colors. Uh, his clothing, the lower part of his trousers were dusty colored. These are all things that are familiar to the Turtle Clan up in Ringwood where they're exposed to this stuff. So he was in, in direct line only for the summer. Oh, this is just one summer. One summer. But he inhaled enough of it that it affected him. And, and years later, when, when he passed, it was the lesions on the brain. And again, the challenge in proving environmental contamination causes the deterioration of a, of a person's health is tough because it takes years. It's cumulative. It builds up, but it can settle into the system and alter. And, and essentially, what it, what it does is it compromises major organs once it gets into the blood. And right. that's the slow breakdown. You know, Tom, you said something before, uh, kind of spoke to the importance of being curious, of, of looking at something. Talking about Chuck being analytical and, yeah. and the journaling and not just walking by something. Right. Yeah, not rather, just walking by. You know, he, exactly. he saw the 55-gallon drums and he stopped and he looked and he thought and he smelled and then he processed it and he even looked to see what that smell was. Many of us have walked right by these things and not had a second thought. And now we see what's going on in the, the environment all around us and everyone's having second thoughts yeah, and I, getting worried. And I think about Tony, I think here's a guy that was on a backhoe creating a hole into which will be poured these dangerous toxins and he's looking right past it too not really thinking of the repercussions, not having the kind of curiosity to even ask the question, what will this do? You know, that old expression that folks use, well, if this don't kill me, something else does. You know, they shrug it off. Yeah, until you get ill. Yes. And then you're pretty damn miserable. You know, and it doesn't kill you right away. It's a long, drawn-out thing. Uh, Somebody at the Hamlet gave me a snapshot of Tony uh, when I was working there on the salt box. And it's so interesting. I put it in um, in one of my lectures. It's Tony measuring the depth at which he's finding paint sludge. It's wow. a photograph of him doing it with a with a like a ruler. I remember Tony well. Tony Spadabecchia. He, he very affable guy. Mm-hmm. Very uh, friendly, nice attitude. Kind of funny and and a uh, little brash from time to time. That kind of thing too. But you think about that. You think this is a human being. This is a life. It's a person. You know whose life touched ours in different ways, and certainly you know your your families, and and then he ceases to exist way before his time because of this. Why do we just seem to be okay with that? Why there's still so many people that are okay with what's going on right now, Chuck? It's the middle of February right now that we're recording this particular episode, and today the temperature will reach well above fifty degrees in the middle of February, in the yeah. middle of winter. Yeah. And we've had days that reached above 60 degrees just in the last few weeks. Something's few happening. Something. 68 degrees three days ago. Yeah. Four days ago. Mm-hmm. Something is happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to stop and take notice. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, I started to say this to somebody the other day, and he said, well, you know, it's all cycles. No, 
No, no it's we've, not. We've never had this. No, <laughs> never this is, had this. These aren't cycles. Well, that here. is the excuse. The excuse is, oh, well, this isn't about us. This is about just nature and the earth, and the earth is just going through the cycle, and so we can ignore it and just wait for our eventual demise. The speed at which it's <laughs> happening is completely unique to the Absolutely. archaeological record. The record of climate change in the past, this kind of fluctuation takes thousands of years, yeah. not 50. <laughs> It's right. completely unique. They say it seems to be quickening. It, it goes yeah. faster. It's it's like a chain reaction. Yep. Yeah. It's warmer, so things and then there's they say that actually about the, the glaciers that they're as they warm and melt from underneath, it's causing them to melt more because and, it, and it's, it's harder like, for them to reform because of the albedo effect. What happens is that's the reflecting of the sun's rays off of the snowpack. But as yeah. you lose that, then the, the albedo effect is diminished. The, you're absorbing more of the solar radiation, right. which is keeping the earth a bit warmer, which means it's harder for that freeze for the glacier to get its toehold to build up again. Yeah. So as the glaciers return seasonally, they don't return with the same level of, uh, of volume. They, they just don't. Just that is just changing. So There's so much change. So one of the effects that we can agree upon here is that environmental destruction occurs at a geometric rate, okay, not at a linear rate. It's not bad today, bad tomorrow, bad the next day, and, you know, it just little by little keeps eroding. It's bad today, it's twice as bad tomorrow, it's three times as bad the next day. Yeah, it's, exponentially, it can continue right. to expand. Right, you know, so that, and I noticed even when you were talking about, you know, Tony and the guys in the woods, even what they were doing was snowballing. And getting worse and worse. Because as, as you accept something outrageous being done to the environment or the ground or whatever, it then becomes commonplace. It becomes a normal thing. Then, well, if this is normal, I can do something more than this. I can, I can you know, expand upon this behavior. And when you expand upon behavior that destroys things, you become much more destructive, you know, over time. So It was interesting. They were preparing a site for a landfill. But the health department told them the site for the landfill cannot be a site that has uh, any level of contamination in it. So they moved the contamination across the Torn Valley Road to the other side. So that it's almost like, let's share the wealth. And, and the thing is, when they moved it, they broke it up. So as bad as it was where it was, you're accelerating its ability to particleize, to break down. And if you put soil on top of it, that means it's going to enter the water chambers. It's going to break down and start to migrate with the water. So in, even in that, they were accelerating the damage and moving it closer to the brook. So it's getting closer, it's getting to, closer the, to the... Right into the floodplain of the Thornbrook. They're just tucking it right in because there was no oversight. And, you know, the other interesting thing is I found that Tom Maselli of the Rockland County Health Department, when they were working on the infrastructure, the drainage for that landfill, which was a, a very big site, it was in operation for 10 years all through the 70s, he uh, has a record of encountering paint sludge in the ground as they were building this. And he reported that, and somebody needed to follow up on that. Nobody did. Nobody did. And he reported it. And the state had a, a, a newly developed Department of Environmental Conservation. And I'm going to talk a lot about the DEC in the series. And the thing is, they're your state regulator, just like the EPA is your federal regulator. They're there to work for you. But unless you make them do the thing that they're 
supposed to do. They have shrinking budgets and small staffs, and they have a hundred things to do every day. You got to focus that uh, magnifying glass on that spot. You got to keep bringing them back to that, because we learned eventually they were there a lot. The, D- the DEC was uh, had visited those sites, and it just got written up and filed, and you know yeah. shelved, and and it, it takes an agitator. Yeah, exactly a squeaky wheel, yeah. because otherwise you, as you say, he reported it, and then probably didn't say much more about it at that right. point. He and did the thing that he needed to do. Yeah. And then and that was it. pretty much the buck stopped. And that's why I think it, it takes uh, the citizen to join in and to keep reminding and reminding because the people who are working the job, uh, they don't really have the time to go back and say, hey, remember I told you that there was paint found here. They, they, they're on to the next part they of the job. And also they may be but, afraid. That there, could I be, don't. Yeah. I don't think Tom hmm. was, but there is. You know, yeah. there, there may be the fear that you're, you're turning over too many pebbles in this creek. Yeah. You know, and and that's that's awkward too. And then of course, then the other side of it is then there's the Ramapos, and and they've worked. Well, you can hear about this later for years, bringing attention to what's going on there. But they're indigenous, right? And uh, that gets us into environmental hmm. racism, which we'll we'll yeah. review. But you know, you're so right, Tom. You, you know, it, it does take citizens being not just alert, but having the courage and the guts to speak up and to speak out and to do it consistently. And I, I keep, I wonder when you say that, what gets somebody to jump that hurdle? Because, I mean, the normal propensity is, well, I'm in my nice, comfortable little home. I have my beautiful little yard. I got a pool in the backyard, too. Oh, this is great. That's great and everything. You know, the sky is blue. The coffee's hot. Nah, why should I get involved in this? It doesn't really affect me. We have to care, yeah. and you have to empathize with people. When, when we hear these stories about people getting sick and, and dying young, you have to, if you don't look, you won't. You'll sit and you'll watch your TV and you'll do whatever, and you'll just move along until one day it, it definitely will affect you or affect your children. If it affects you, then that's when you're going to start to jump away from the TV, or if it doesn't, then your children will be doing that. But you have to join in. And you said something about uh, the indigenous. And I thought to myself, Martin Luther King and all these marches back in the 60s, some of them before I was born, some after, they didn't get as much attention and as much movement until white people joined the march and other people joined in the march. It's very easy for... A government to compartmentalize, I guess, and to put one group over there. Oh, that group is rioting. They're doing this. That's them. And we don't have to think about it much. But if we join them, if we all join up yeah. with That's them, so true. Yeah. then yeah. suddenly the government says, oh, this is becoming really inconvenient for us, and we better start to, to do and, something. And I think, I think when you talk about how you, know, you have to care, I think people have to care for children. Because yeah. when you leave the, the crap in the ground, you know, when you leave the, the water spoiled, when you, when you don't correct those things, you're dooming your children. Yeah. And if, if you don't have children, then you're your friend's children. I mean, how can, you, how, can you, how can you do this? It's you the know, seventh generation principle. If, if you can't live by your means now, that in some fashion, another generation, seven generations down, won't be able to live by their means. If you're, ta- if you're taking now such that they're not going to have any, it's inconceivable to right. me that people behave that way. They do, though. 
unconscionable. They do. They do. Well, you know, really, this is legacy. That's what we're talking about here, legacy. What is the legacy that you want to leave? Because if it's having effect on your lives right now, it's going to have a profound effect on your children. And if you can sleep soundly with that in your head, then you have a much bigger problem than just this. Yeah, you you do. Yes, you do. Well, people deny these things because it's convenient, but it's easy to deny it while it's not happening to you or while it's not affecting you. That's the amazing thing. It's always happening everywhere. Right. And and your denial is actually... You know, putting on the blinders to your own health. Well, you know, you just reminded me of something I wanted to say uh, from before, which was you were talking about Tony, and um, you uh, said that he, you know, he's digging this. They, they're all gone. Uh, he had dust on his pants. He could smell the odor. Mm-hmm. And we can smell the odor. We yeah. can. Yeah. But uh, as you said before, when you're not sick, well... Yeah, that's it's just something I'm dealing with. And then you get sick and you say, you know, oops. Wait, why back then did I just say, eh, it won't be me. It'll be somebody else. We, we also have a medical industrial paradigm that's in denial as well about environmental illnesses. There's, uh, there's illnesses that are exotic that you can get from, from industrial toxins. And they'll say, well, that's hypothetical. Or perhaps they'll right. call it a theory or something. But there are hot spots, and you can recognize this. You could, the, the data is there for the hot spots. It's right. like PVC. The, that plume of PVC that was released in Ohio uh, just recently. And it, what's going on is it had to be chilled. It was in a liquid form, and it had to be chilled in those freight cars. And when the trains all went over, they, uh, they no longer had the power running to them. So the chill was uh, dissipating, and that could cause it to explode. And they were so afraid of the explosion contaminating everybody that they intentionally set the, the PVC uh, tankers on fire. And what that created, that's what, if you saw it on the news, those huge black pillows of, of smoke and yeah. billowing over that little town. And, and what happened was, then they said, okay, don't breathe the air and don't drink the water and so forth. And then the EPA came back two days later and said, okay, okay, it's safe now. No it's not. No. That fire, that picture alone tells us it's not because that's creating the dust that's now going to settle on everything, which means you've now, I, I don't know if they had a choice at the time, that uh, perhaps right. burning it was the right thing to do to dissipate it, to avoid the explosions. But now you've got the dust, and that's here. Right. And, and mitigating that, remediating that is such a huge job. And the EPA sounded like they were walking away. And thank God for the people who knew they were sick, who saw all the dead fish in their creeks, and who said, this isn't happening. You're coming back. We need FEMA money. And, and they're you know, yanking the, the federal government's the, chain the to go- return. The governor just saw it last night. He, uh, he already said, well, if, you're, if you have municipal water, it's safe to drink. And I thought, well, oh, so it's not, if you have well water, it's not safe. What about all this the people a, with wells? I know, that's one. But right, two, right, is, right. the other thing is um, that... Water comes from someplace. From someplace. Where that material. <laughs> we could smell it here. Did you guys get it? We got it here in Goshen. Mm-hmm. 
couple days ago, we could smell it. We, there, was, uh, really? there were articles about it because it's wafting across. Do you remember a few years ago when the, all the fires on the West Coast? We could smell that here. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, we could actually smell that industrial scent right here. You could smell it in Cornwall and, and Mountainville in, um, and in, in Goshen here. I think in Warwick, everybody started reporting on their patch, you know, on their local uh, patch. Yeah. We can smell something. It smelled like uh, uh, some people described burning sugar. Smelled like yes. sugar that was, you know, sizzling in a pan or something. I smelled it. I was walking my dog, and I smelled it. It was faint, but if we can smell it here, that means it traveled the entire length of the state of Pennsylvania. That's a, the Keystone State. Right. That's a long state, and it, it traveled with enough density that we could still smell it at at this end. Can on, you imagine on what it's doing to those people in that yeah. town. And imagine their water sources or an open reservoir. Right. Think sure. about that. You know, it's it's going to settle in. So well, I guess what I'm angry about in, in this instance is our regulatory agencies are quick to say, okay, it's good, let's calm down, like they did after 9-11. That's exactly it right. wasn't good, and we know that, so let's just be honest. Uh, we we got to go, right? We're right. We, to the end here. <laughs> we want to keep these to about 30 minutes because we right. know that everybody lives very busy lives. But <laughs> if I could just summarize you know, what I think the lessons are from, from today's episode is, number one, be curious. Don't just walk by. Don't just pass by things, as Tom said before. Stop for a moment. Listen. Look around. Feel the earth around you. Be curious about what's happening to it. And then, you know, listen to the news stories and be curious about what's happening in, in Ohio. Because as Chuck just pointed out, what's happening in Ohio is going to be happening here a few days later. That's the way it works. Connect the dots. And one more thing. Don't let them excuse it away. Don't let a governor tell you two days later that the water is safe. Don't let them off the Without hook. questioning and saying, wait a minute, let's make sure the water's safe. We need you to do more. Question authority. Question authority. Always. Speak truth to power. You bet. <laughs> and with that, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us this week. So we'll see you next week. Get the let out with Dr. Chuck Stead. <laughs>